the Middle Ages is the it's the flourishing of this culture that goes all the way back to antiquity, right? And that eventually, guided by Christianity, kind of blossoms and produces this beautiful icon of this eternal reality. Redemption of the cosmos is possible because the cosmos is held together and moved ultimately by the love of God. Dante calls it the love at the very end of the of Paradiso, the love that moves the sun and the other stars. Pitch for the discarded image, not just the book itself, which is a really beautiful introduction, but to the whole world that it introduces. And it's a much more, in, in, in some, some, some senses, dangerous world. I think there's something about the idea of a world that's just held together by these perfectly regular laws. There's something about that that I think feels very safe and ordered mm -hmm. and tidy. Right, but but the the medieval cosmos, just like the medieval church, is an untidy and colorful place. All right, welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Dialogues with Derek. Uh, joining me today is none other than Seraphim Richard Rowland. How are, you, how are you doing today, Richard? I am okay. It has been, as I was explaining before we hit the record button, it has been just a wild and crazy week, or week and a half or something like that and uh i'm currently sitting here in my office you can't see this uh for, on the camera but i'm actually sitting here surrounded by everybody's snow white books so um or not everybody's but a lot of people's i have about 300 more orders here in my in my office so we're working on getting those filled yeah so, i had a lot of people saw a lot of questions heard a lot of questions people reaching out hey have you heard anything about the snow white yep. book i haven't received mine yet well we know uh, we didn't know, but we know now. Um, yeah, I guess that's a good place to start with updates. Is the uh, the crazy Snow White adventure? If uh, if people people uh, read Jonathan's uh, updates in the newsletter or on the the Snow White Kickstarter, um, I'm share my screen real quick too. So yeah, yeah, yeah. An idea. Um, I mean, basically, basically, uh, whenever Jonathan launched the new God's Dog campaign, there was um, a whole bunch of people started reaching out and saying, hey, where's my stuff? And Jonathan was like, what? I thought everybody had their stuff. And um, so he flew down here to Dallas and basically everything was really, really bad. Um, you can read his update if you want specific details on it, but it was one of those beautiful things. I mean, uh, it wasn't lost on us that all of this happened on Candlemas, right? On on the feast of the, the meeting of the Lord in the temple. And... Uh, it, Groundhog Day. Groundhog Day. Yeah, it's probably actually the most, other it's than perfect. the Ethiopia stuff. I, I mean, I don't know if this is true by the numbers, but certainly in terms of videos that people have come up to me and talked to me about, it's the Groundhog Day is probably the most popular thing that Jonathan and I have done together. Yeah, and and Groundhog Day or or Candlemas is all about the you know the light appearing in the darkness, and that's really what the last week has been. Uh, it's funny because. Crazy. At some, at some point, Jonathan and I were talking about some different things and prayer and, and whatnot. And he said, you know, he said, yeah, mystical things don't really happen to me. You know, I believe that they happen. They just, and then I'm like with him for a week and he's just like this nonstop vortex of, of things happening, like mysterious, wonderful, terrible, like mystical things constantly happening around him. And I was like, oh, so mystical things don't happen to you, huh? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, you know, and maybe it's better not to notice these things, but, um, but noticing things is my, is my, uh, my, my, my superpower. So anyway, yeah. so that's, uh, uh, so that's been the last week and a half. So I'm a little tired and I'm going to apologize in advance if I'm just like a little tired, but, um, but definitely, uh, if you don't have your Snow White book at this point, I think we know 
and uh, we're working to make sure that everybody gets the rest of their stuff. So, man, a lot of weird yeah. stuff. Like I, because people ask me because I have a few unboxing videos, and they're now that yeah. it's become a thing, they're kind of expecting it. And so, oh, like, hey, where's your unboxing video? I was like, I, I'll do one when I get one. And I went and checked, and like, my order is ghosted. Like, I don't have any evidence whatsoever that I even you purchased told me that. it. Yeah, which well, is crazy because uh, I remember, like, I saw the confirmation page. Like it was all there and all of a sudden, like just nothing, not on Did you do it in, in Kickstarter or in backer? Anyway, it doesn't matter. We'll figure it out later. We'll figure it, it out later. I have the, I have the yeah. list of everybody who ordered and doesn't have their stuff. So uh, we'll, we'll figure that out later. But yeah, in the meantime, everybody just like, uh, I, I, I have kind of stepped in to help Jonathan get the rest of this fulfillment done. And he's also got a team of just yes. really wonderful people who are helping get this fulfillment finished uh, people all around the globe. So we're going to make sure everybody gets their stuff and, yeah, that's that's uh that's all I can say about it, except that, you know, like like I said, we're gonna try to make sure everyone gets their stuff. So Wow, man. Yeah. So yeah, the rescuing Snow White. The rescuing Adventures Snow White. Sarah from Richard Roman and Jonathan Bichot. <laughs> it was it was awesome. I mean, at some point we had just like all of this, we had to go somewhere and actually get all of the Snow White books that had just been shipped to this random location. And that's why at least, you know, like seven hundred of them had hadn't shipped out. And, um, and so we put them all in my suburban and we were driving around and, and the suburban, which for people who don't know, I mean, this is, a, it's a, like a large SUV, but it's basically as big an SUV as you, can, as you can roll. Right. Uh, well, I've, I have a lot of kids. And so, you know, this, your, your options yeah. become more and more limited as, as you have more children. And, uh, so, but literally the suburban was so full that the very last box had to go in Jonathan's lap. So we're driving around all week for like four days. And every time he gets in the car, we ha he has to take this box out, get in, and then put the box in his lap. And then every time he gets out, he has to step out and then put the box back in the front seat. And uh, we started calling it his burden. You know, this is kind of like like Pilgrim's Progress or something, right? Mm. This is, you know, yeah. it, it, his burden. But um, yeah, it's yeah, almost so like that, a hero's journey. Yeah, uh, Pilgrim's Progress, totally. Yeah, it's it's so it's it's been wild. I mean, I'm still kind of like, I think my wife and I are are, are just like still in recovery mode from and of course while jonathan was down i i uh i was like well obviously you you have this incredibly stressful situation so i should also make sure to fill your social calendar as much as possible that would be a good thing to do um <laughs> i'm i i wouldn't say yeah. that i'm an extrovert but i'm definitely more extroverted than than he is and so uh, so I think I wore him out a little bit, but but everybody down here, I mean, we've been trying to get Jonathan to come for Dallas to Dallas for years. You know, it's just never oh. worked out. And so he came and very graciously gave a talk at the cathedral, and uh, and we uh, talked about the the iconography of the cathedral. If if folks, if you're ever out in Dallas, come to Saint Seraphim Orthodox Cathedral. The iconography is just some of the best in the in the country, I think, mm. and that's just really beautiful. And um, you know, not a not a not a large building by any stretch, but also a, a massive building. You know, mm. in 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 a spiritual sense, just in terms of, you know, opening opening uh, you up to up to the the to paradise. So, yeah. Anyway, Jonathan came and gave a wonderful talk to us, and also came. We have some people who meet at my house on Fridays for the book club, and Ooh, uh, club. So, so Jonathan came, and we ended up just like asking him fun questions about symbolism and fairy tales and uh uh sitting out by the fire it was great so anyway Love so it. so so we were able to Love prevail it. on him to kind of uh um 
come out and and you know be a little sociable and talk to us a little bit and then you know uh but like i said i think i wore him out by the end but yeah but 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 hopefully he got a good taste of texas hospitality i tried to take him Love it. all the best barbecue places and all that stuff so <laughs> that's been the last week and a half it's just been a weird time it's been a weird time yeah. Well, uh, how apropos, because as people who are tuning in know, uh, our discussion today is centered around The Discarded Image by C.S. Lewis. It is the last published book that Lewis made. Um, it's a very interesting book, o uh, somewhat overlooked book, but yeah. critical For to sure. his work and really the development of what's happening in the symbolic world. Uh, and I'm really glad that he published it before his passing. Um, but before we get into that, I wanted to check in on a few other projects since I have you, Richard. You know, Richard, this is great because this is the first time that you and I have had a one-on-one -on -one, uh, dialogue yeah. because the other ones have been in more of like a roundtable discussion. Yeah, 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 yeah. So uh, uh, let's go ahead and uh, check in with some other projects that you have going on. Mm. I, I suppose, you know, 10 minutes in or so is a good time to give you a formal introduction. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah fair enough yeah so it's we're, we're not we, we do a non-linear podcast here that's um, right that's right so uh uh mr roland is the um producer co-host of amon school the podcast that centers around uh the counterpart to lewis his contemporary uh tolkien and so you guys go over a lot of the, the religious themes or, you know, symbolism yeah. as nested um, into the orthodox frame. Yeah. Father, Father Andrew and I do the podcast together. And essentially what we do is we, we read the works of J.R. or Tolkien as orthodox Christians. Right. Um, and so we're just sort of bringing that perspective to things, but, um, uh, and just the ways that, you know, I think for Father Andrew and I both, we probably wouldn't be orthodox without Tolkien. Wow. Uh, um, wow. and, uh, certainly, certainly there's something, there's something in, in Tolkien that awakens a certain kind of person to, um, to a world of, uh, uh to a world of enchantment, or you could say like a sacramental imagination. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and that's what brought us, you know, by many highways and byways, that's what brought both of us. He, he's the son of evangelical missionaries. I'm the son of evangelical missionaries and evangelical pastors, and uh, so, you know, in that sense, not very likely people to be, you know, to become Orthodox. Although, obviously, a lot of people have 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 done that now. But, um, mm -hmm. but but he also for... had a lot of children too. Yes, yes, family. Yeah, for sure. So, yeah. Anyway, uh, uh, for, for Father Andrew and I both, um, or uh, Tolkien was an important part of of coming to Orthodoxy, and it's interesting because I think that. Uh, um, uh, reading Tolkien has always been associated with a certain kind of, uh, let's say, resistance to the spirit of the age. Um, mm. In fact, initially he was he was really really popular with like hippies, which he was a little dismayed by. You know, Tolkien no himself, saying. Tolkien uh, himself, not a hippie. Um, very very uh, um, um, yeah, very traditional guy in a lot of respects, right? Yeah. And so there were definitely parts of that whole movement that would have been like the sexual revolution and things like that that were mm. really, really totally contrary to what, yeah. you know, the way that he saw the world. But the reason that I think that his his uh, his book attracted these people was because they recognized um, uh, that there really was something deeply wrong with like Western culture in the mm. 50s and 60s, right, coming out of the Second World War. Uh, and and um, 
something something kind of oppressive and totalizing about the the modern state and anyway all of that stuff i don't want to get into politics right now but essentially uh uh reading tolkien has always been kind of associated with the sort of counterculture or resistance to the spirit of the age as i as i called it mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. i i saw just the other day that now like reading tolkien is one of the things that's on a list of like potential subversives like if you're you know, oh, right. for some government agency. Right. And so I was like, well, yeah, I, that, I guess that checks out, but yeah. So we just, we, we read, uh, we read, uh, uh, Tolkien's works as Orthodox Christians and yeah. yeah, that's it. So, you know, the, the other thing that Richard does is come up with board games and, uh, I'm just curious yeah. how the Emboria project yes. is going. Yeah. So Emboria, uh, role-playing in the world under starlight is a tabletop, role it's actually a tabletop role-playing game. That's right. Um, I do, I do come up with board games, but board games are really expensive to publish. And so none of them have seen the light of day yet, but maybe one of these days. Uh, but yeah, this is, uh, a, a tabletop role-playing game set in a fantasy world, which I've been working on for actually most of my life. Um, and, uh, I've talked about it in detail, some other places. I think that we should, I, at some point I'll, we should have a conversation about this maybe because there's some weird stuff going on like symbolically there's some weird stuff going on in in Emboria and I would love to yeah. just like talk about it but um it's on my so list the, for unboxing yeah. by the way awesome well yeah. I I promise you you're going to get yours um you know yeah. the 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 <laughs> fortunately we have some very good people who are in charge of of the yeah. fulfillment for uh Kickstarter fulfillments for Strange Owl Games which is the company that's publishing publishing the game and so you'll definitely you'll definitely get your book but um anyway yeah uh it's coming along great uh if you backed the project you should be getting a layout of the monster chapter uh pretty soon uh, basically the art has been finished there it's in layout right now and uh you should also probably by the end of the month be getting a draft of the second book which is uh thunder in the north so if you backed at the level to get the the campaign book you should be getting a full draft of that by the end of february so it's coming along um i think some people are aware that uh we've had some health issues both myself uh, i i had a really nasty bout with heavy metal poisoning last year and then also um uh, john matthew who's the 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 line editor for strange owl games had a had a very very close brush with uh death via bacterial meningitis so it's been kind of like uh we we had a, have a couple of health scares that pushed our, our uh, production schedule out a little bit but it's coming along and um like i said you oh, can pr- you'll probably have drafts of everything uh the draft of the core book is already out but you'll have a draft of the campaign book by the end of this month and also you'll get to start seeing um as the core book is now with the editors and the layout people um you'll get to uh, um and the arts being finished you'll get basically we're gonna share those chapters as they're laid out so that people can see the progress so very excited about that very excited about that um- Glad you're doing better, man. Yeah, it's intense. I, this last year, man, it's been crazy, and I think I think that 2024 is going to be an incredibly weird year. I think mm-hmm. for everybody, for the world, for our community, um, for everybody. Yeah, yeah. And the well, other uh, project that I know that people will want uh 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 to know about is a book uh that we're we're putting together. There's a whole lot of symbolic world people involved in it called Finding the Golden Key. Oh, and yes. I know several people have written yeah. to me a very concerned, hey, is my essay ever going to be published, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I, I really I have to say, first of all, that I, I deeply appreciate everybody's um patience. Uh we had we were going one direction initially when we were going to start publishing the book like two years ago, and that didn't work out. And so since then I've been trying to figure out 
should I self-publish this or try to find some other home for it? The good news is that it's going to be published by Symbolic World Press. Uh, basically, that'll be the next thing that I work on uh, for the press as soon as we get over the current uh, the current hurdles. So hopefully sometime later this year. And that's still awesome. the goal. Still awesome. the goal is to get it published in 2024. Yeah, um, I know. I helped uh, proofread one of the articles. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it was like, this is going to be great. Can't it's wait. It's going to be awesome. And we're going to have some really great cover arts. Uh, Hugh Rose has already, as some of you in the Symbolic mm -hmm. World community are probably aware of him, yeah, yeah. he's already agreed to do a cover for it. And we have something in mind. Uh, we just have to, you know, pay him and then uh, get that get that done. Uh, but all this, all this is going to be happening. So um, it's going to be awesome. And I, I really appreciate everybody's patience. I, 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 uh, I'm going to try to send a, send a note out to everybody who is, uh, who's involved in the project, just letting them know where we're at, but still planning on publishing that sometime this year through Symbolic Fantastic. World Press. And that probably Fantastic. won't be, originally I was, we were thinking we'd do a crowdfunder at this point, probably won't be. It'll probably just be uh, just a book that we publish and we'll kind of announce it as, when it comes out. So, okay. yeah. You know, uh, another thing coming up just around the corner is the Symbolic World Summit down in Florida. Yes. And I know- Are that you, you coming? I'm I'm there, man. I am I'm gonna go there. I'm gonna be awesome. visiting with James and Love Neil, it. a bunch of other Love people it. that have been on the podcast, get to meet them all in person. Just, just can't wait. Uh I'll go ahead and share screen again uh for you watching the video version of the podcast. Um yeah, so uh the cool thing is that Roland, you're gonna be one of the speakers. And I so am. I'm just curious, like, what are you looking forward to in the event and what are you gonna be talking on? Oh boy. Uh I, I am looking forward to so many different things about the event. I'm looking forward to just meeting all my internet friends in person. Uh, when yes. Jonathan came down here last week, it was the first time that we'd ever actually hung out in, in the flesh. And that was just really wonderful. Um, and uh, I'm looking forward to that same kind of feeling with so many other people. Uh, uh, Neil DeGrade from Dirt Poor Robins uh, is somebody whose artistic vision I just deeply love and admire and uh, he's just this this constant font of creativity. I'm looking forward to to getting to hang out with him. The fact that I get to be at an event with Martin Shaw, I mean, this is like 10 years ago. If you'd been like, okay, man, this is your life in 10 years. You know, you're going to be an Orthodox Christian and you're going to be at an event with Martin Shaw, who's also going to be an Orthodox Christian by then. And like all this other stuff, I would have been like, you're crazy. There's no way any of this is going to happen. So mm -hmm. I, I get to... Yeah. Uh, just getting to be there, obviously, uh, Father Stephen Young, somebody I consider to be a good friend. Uh, he and I are going to be doing actually our our uh, track together, which is uh, very nerve wracking for me because I'm going to be all the things I'm going to be talking about are things that he's the expert in, but I'm going to be the one talking about them. So, um, yeah, so we're going to do. Uh, so I'm I'm looking forward to a whole bunch of I'm looking forward to the uh, uh, just being with all of you people in person and uh, being able to talk about some of these things that we all really care about. And I think that uh, um, I think it's going to be an awesome event. So, yeah, that's that's what I'm looking yeah. forward to um, as far as uh, I mean, what do you want me? Uh, you Do you want me to talk about what I'm going to be talking about? Or? Well, how about we do this? Because yeah. I know people came here. They're just dying to know more about this yes. incredible book by C.S. Lewis. Yep. That is so central to real. Oh, the other thing worth mentioning is here we have the universal history track. I know you've quoted the book a bunch, you, yes. uh, but I just wanted to give a lot of breathing room in this episode for you to explain uh, just how influential the book is and then help people understand it. Because when the first time that I went to read it, 
uh, I think I made it halfway through and I was like the section that has, you know, the, the review of the four different uh, pieces of literature from the medieval yeah. ages. And I was just like, Oh, I need to move on to something else. And then I came back to it two years later, you know, after having learned and worked on all these other things and I had yeah. a different perspective and I was like, Oh my gosh, this is great. But it took a little bit of excavation for me to, to get to the the core of that tour and actually hit home. Well, and so I'm thinking, well, you know, if maybe there's some other readers in my position that would appreciate knowing yeah. uh, more about the book to help them understand really what's going on. So let me let me start with a story because this will also kind of tie into how I became the universal history guy. Um, like all this stuff is is super related, and it all starts with a girl. It all starts with a girl. Uh, as um, most stories, as most that are stories worth telling are good stories do right. Yes. So um, I met my current wife. Uh, I say current wife, only wife. I, I met my wife. Um, uh, what I meant to say is I met the woman who is currently my wife when I was 10 years old and she was 14. And when you're a 10 year old boy, uh, when you're a 14 year old girl, you don't remember 10 year old boys. Uh, but if you're a 10 year old boy, you, you do remember 14 year old girls, right? This is how mm -hmm. this works, right? So um, I met her when I was 10 and she was 14. And I said to myself, I am going to marry that girl. Wow. And I spent the next uh, 10 years of my life making that happen. Um, and so in order to to do this, because, of course, you know, there's other guys interested in her and they're all older than me and stuff. So I had to, like, do everything on this really accelerated kind of a, a, mm. a program. And so I. I. Um, I finished college, my undergrad, when I was 19 years old oh. and when I was 20, we got married. I love it. And uh, and we have five children now. Oh, and yes. we've been married, you know, uh, a while, and <laughs> and uh, and and uh, it's been wonderful. And you know, I, I wouldn't change anything about it. One of the things that this meant was that, uh, and the other thing to mention, and I did a really kind of a deep dive into some of my background in a conversation I did with Paul Vanderclay. So people who mm. want to know kind of more about the specific culture that I grew up in can maybe go and watch that video, but. Um, essentially yeah. the the culture that I grew up in so I'd always been really attracted to uh to ancient stories right uh to the Middle Ages to things like Narnia and the Lord of the Rings and to to the the uh, let's say like the spicier parts of the Old Testament stuff like that you know like that was the stuff that was really interesting to me and when um when uh when I was in my late teens I basically, put all of that stuff aside, both because I was like hyper-focused on just trying to, to get through school. Uh, so I could, so I could marry this girl. Uh, and also because the, the culture that I was in, which was a fundamentalist, uh, evangelical subculture, uh, really emphasized, um, things had to be really practical. Things had to be really practical. And there was the sense that stories and storytelling uh, was was not practical. It wasn't functional, and in fact, maybe in certain ways, it could be dangerous. Mm. And uh, which is certainly true. It can be dangerous, um, but uh, uh, but not everything dangerous is bad. That's uh, which is one of the early lessons that Narnia taught me. So anyway, I um, uh, so I kind of put all this stuff away, and just focused on like getting the degree and getting life started and everything. And I find myself when I'm maybe 22 or so years old, uh, sitting at my desk. And at this point I'm on pastoral staff 
which is one of you know one of the things that I've been also focused on during that time was my my uh, theological education. Mm -hmm. I'm on pastoral staff, and I'm also uh, married. I've got my first child on the way, and I have um, uh, a, a really good job, a really good secular job that's paying the bills and all this different stuff. So, like basically, all the things that I was supposed to do with my life, I'm 22 years old. And they're done. And everything that everybody had been telling me, you have to do these things, right? It's all done. Mm -hmm. I'm sitting there and I just feel cold and empty. Mm. And it's not because I had an unhappy marriage or anything like that, but it's there was just there was something missing from my life. There was something missing from my life. And so I um I decided to just sort of go back. And it wasn't even like a I, I remember sitting at my desk. I remember that moment. Um, but but I, I I just sort of found myself gravitating, you could say gradually over the course of the next few weeks, to just going back to the things that brought me joy and beauty and wonder in my childhood. And so mm -hmm. I went back yeah. to I went back to Narnia, I went back to the Lord of the Rings. And as I was kind of like looking around for what are some other things that I could read that are kind of like this, it um uh, somebody recommended, uh, just like online, somebody recommended um, the C.S. Lewis's The Discarded Image. Ah, okay. And, and I said, well, I love Lewis. And of course, I'd read all of his apologetics as a young evangelical. It's sort of like a rite of passage. Like mere Christianity. You know, yeah, when you're like, dude, I could argue with an atheist. You know, like that's a that's a moment in like every young no. evangelical <laughs> life. Right. Um, uh, but but yeah, so I, I uh, so I'd read I was familiar with a lot of his stuff, but I hadn't really read any of his scholarly stuff, like the 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 I think in your notes you're calling it Lewis's day job stuff, right? Which is which yeah. this definitely is. So mm -hmm. I got a copy of the discarded image and I read it, and it was like everything. Basically, two, I I read two things uh, right at that time. One was Lewis's discarded image, and the other was Tolkien's essay on fairy stories. And those two things together sort of helped me put my world back together, mm. and. Uh, when I read through the discarded image in particular, I was so blown away by the world that Lewis introduces you to. And this is really how to think about the book, is that Lewis is trying to introduce you to a world uh, which, which, you know, which is which is which is past, which is lost, right? Mm -hmm. uh, which, you know, um, for most people, for most people is not the world that they live in, right? You know, even if maybe it actually is secretly, you know, but for most people, it's not the world that they actually live in. And by the way, we all know this. This is why stories, uh, uh, sometimes called like magic portal fantasy or magical realism. Also, you know, things like this, this is why those stories are like really, are really compelling, really grip you. I mean, Narnia being an early example of this, but there's lots of other examples that people have written since, you know, this, this uh a realization that there's actually a parallel world or a secret world with hidden inside the regular world and everything in that world is is magical and alive and actually the way that you always kind of thought it should be right and so this is what you get in the line the witch in the wardrobe is the children encounter what are mm -hmm. actually just all of these different archetypes from from children's fiction and literature uh, witches and fawns and Father Christmas and so on. They're mm -hmm. encountering all of these things, but they're encountering them 
uh, vivid and alive and with all of the, you know, uh, with sharp, with all the sharp corners left on, you know, um, and, and it's, yeah. and it's this sense of, I mean, again, this is one of the most important things that you can learn is that not everything that is dangerous is bad. Right. Mm-hmm. And not everything that is, not everything that is good is safe. Right. Aslan, you know, he's not safe, but he's good. He's not a yeah. tame lion. Mr. Right? Beaver says that, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, if, I mean, yes. if you can, if you can get that, uh, if you can get sort of get that in your head, and then sort of point that towards Christ. I mean, this is the, this is the thing. Like, if you really meet Jesus Christ, it will completely ruin your life. I mean, mm-hmm. you won't be able to be the same anymore, and you won't be able to, 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 be a successful American anymore, and you won't be able to like, you know, it's going to really, really disrupt things, mm-hmm. right? If you meet the Christ of the Gospels, I mean, who is who is a bizarre and perplexing and vexing and sometimes completely unhelpful person. I mean, just go read the Gospels. Anytime somebody asks mm-hmm. Jesus a question, they don't get anything like a helpful answer, you know, and um, uh. You know, and you can tell like the disciples are frustrated. They're coming like, come on, Jesus, like, come on. Did you even hear what I asked? Or or just like (laughs) like like you know, you can't say this, Jesus. People are gonna leave, right? You know, there's that sense. Um absolutely. But yeah, so so the the uh so I I I immersed myself in all of that stuff. Um when I read the discarded image, Lewis uh the world that that Lewis was introducing me to, I, I I found to be really beautiful and compelling and just deeply on a very intuitive level. Um, uh, I'm, I'm actually not a super abstract person, uh, which is funny because like the, the kinds of math I was always good at in school, in school were the, um, were the, uh, like the more abstract kinds of math. Right. But, but I'm not really an abstract person. Like I don't think in terms of like metaphysical, and the realities and things like this, everything is, uh, uh, okay. Everything's very concrete for me, I guess you could say. Um, okay. I don't, uh, I don't think of, there's no God in the abstract, right? There's no like God of the philosophers. Like let's, mm-hmm. let's talk about God, the concept of God in the abstract. Uh, I'm not saying that that's not useful for some people. Um, but for me, I just, it's totally uninteresting. I just kind of zone out. I, I, uh, the only God that I'm interested in is, is, you know, the one that I, the one that I eat on Sunday mornings, you know, if things have got to be, you know, so in that sense, everything is very concrete. And that's one of the things that I really loved about the middle ages is that it is this, it is this um, period of not to say there aren't like great metaphysics and things like that, that developed during the middle ages, but there's, there's, there's an immediacy to the world that I think that gets sort of lost in in modern time. So mm-hmm. what I decided to do uh, when I read the discarded image, and of course uh, it's essentially kind of a survey and of course it's taken from lectures that lewis gave but it's essentially a survey of medieval literature mm-hmm. and sort of the parts of medieval the the so these these sort of seminal works of medieval literature that lewis says you know if you read you know if you really want to understand this period you have to read these books yeah. and then he goes on from there to kind of expound on the medieval model right so what i decided to do was to read everything that Lewis talks about in the discarded mm. image. Mm-hmm. And that's how I went on to do my graduate degree in medieval literature and languages. And that's uh-huh. how I, uh, that's basically why I became an Orthodox Christian. And that's basically mm-hmm. how I got in, uh, involved in, in basically everything that I've done since then. So this book is really, Ooh, wow. it is, it 
was like a major watershed for me and it still yeah. is i mean i uh, I, I go back to it relatively frequently i've i've led a couple of 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 um uh studies through it and um yeah mm. yeah wow do you have a copy of the book with you? Which which version do you have? Uh, I think that I've given away all of my copies. This actually oh. happens pretty frequently, but I have it on Kindle here in front of me. But yeah, um, okay. I uh, oh, I might have a copy. I might have a copy. My Lewis shelf is over Your there. I just wanted I to take a moment. Um, yeah, I don't think that I do have a copy. I I have. Um, yeah, here's mine here. Yeah, there you go. So I I, I, would, I just wanted to take a moment, just take a, a fun little break to show you something. Uh, because I think I actually have the coolest copy in okay. the world that exists. All okay. right. So the title is The Discarded Image. Mm -hmm. I purchased this on thriftbooks.com. Thrift it's one of my favorite places to buy books that aren't, you know, brand new. Uh, typically brand new books I buy is, um, say, like uh, stuff that's published on Symbolic World Press or things that my friends are doing. Uh, I get to be part of that release experience. Um but otherwise, especially older books, I like to buy on thriftbooks.com. Or one of my favorite things to do is just go to thrift stores and just hunt. It's like a treasure hunt for me. Because you end up finding gems like this one. So I bought this one for maybe $5, right? It was on the clearance shelf, so to speak. Uh, and I get it. And it turns out that it's a library copy. And it has like the due date tab on it and everything. And in the first page is a giant stamped inked word you guess what word that says discarded <laughs> <laughs> so i have awesome. a discarded library copy of the discarded image that's fantastic <laughs> man that is who that's chilling is what that is um yeah because that's the whole point right the reason it's the discarded image right uh of course another another word for image same word in greek right is is icon right um ah. and that's the that's the uh the, the the way to really think about it is that uh Tolkien had, gets to this idea as well through when he talks about medieval literature as the great rude screen that was his term for medieval poetry and literature uh but but the idea is that if you took all of the the say the culture produced by the middle ages um, the architecture and the literature and so so on and so forth. If you took all of that and put it together, you would say this you could say this is an icon of the kingdom of heaven, that it's it's revealing something about um it's revealing something about a uh um something that's not bound by time, right? Something that's an eternal reality. And this is important. This is really important because uh it's not enough and and i don't i couldn't tell you exactly when it happened i i've always been somebody who likes old things um but there there was a shift there was a, a turning point probably about the time that i became orthodox um but there's there's uh there's a difference between just being somebody who likes old things right and so basically you're always kind of living in um uh, you're always kind of living in in nostalgia uh versus again that that immediacy that immediacy uh that that i was talking about a moment ago and if you if you just live in nostalgia then you become the sort of i mean my my friends poke fun at me all the time because as i get older you know i uh I, you know i just started wearing vests and smoking pipes and things like this mm -hmm. and they're like ah you're just becoming that guy and you know and mm -hmm. certainly certainly yeah. 
that is true. But but you know there there is this sort of this you know image of the nostalgia guy you know sort of sitting in his tattered armchair smoking a pipe and he's reading about all of these wild and wonderful things but but then but his 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 uh he's got a, a safe distance uh mm-hmm. between himself and those things and that it doesn't really um uh and you know this is the guy who maybe like quotes some latin you know for you know as he's going but 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 it doesn't it doesn't really change the way that he lives his life mm, yeah yeah and and that's the thing that i think we have to be really careful of um mm. uh because you can you can kind of I'm trying to think of like a less extreme way to say this um but you could you can kind of uh you could like nostalgia your way right into hell if you're not careful um because because you um uh you know they have that I, in a great divorce yeah exactly that, exactly where you find I, certain levels yeah. of hell where there's um it's yeah. well inhabited by theologians yes. and philosophical yes. thinkers yes and that is hell like that the the to, to to like sit around and just think about these these ideas and then never actually be able to kind of embody them in any way right mm-hmm. um and 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 of course like well, most importantly to never repent right that's the, uh, our repentance is the thing that yeah. that all of this should be leading us to i mean if there's anything yeah. that's missing yeah. if there's anything that's missing from the kind of like inklings adjacent mm-hmm. discourse of like people who you know there's a venn diagram overlap right here of people who like to talk or or, or write about the inklings i'm one of those guys and you know maybe they're also really into classical education. I'm also one of those guys. And maybe they're also really into uh, just like old things and craft beer and like whatever else. You know, like that guy, right? But there's um, there's a significant kind of Venn diagram over uh, the the. You say that there's like all these qualities that are often kind of packaged together, and uh, that that produces somebody kind of like me but then what's missing from the conversations that people like me are are usually having about this stuff is any kind of repentance any kind of mm-hmm. ascetic struggle yeah um things like this and so i think that uh i think that we, you have to be very 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 careful just to, uh, to not just let this stuff be like isn't this kind of neat because what what you'll end up doing is when we talk about the faults in the book in a minute I'll, I'll give you some examples of place that Lewis does this, right? And like, where who, like uh, Lewis falls short. Yeah, and oh, who am I to criticize C.S. Lewis, right? But but I'm gonna, yeah. you know, it's hey, C. you know, did, did, I don't know if you got a chance to listen to it. One of the talks that I have with John in the Peugeot, he accidentally calls him Saint Lewis. Hmm. That's funny. That's funny. Yeah. I don't. I don't think Lewis is a saint, but um, uh, but but he's certainly certainly a great man, and I certainly. That, and I just say that because I think. Um, yeah. It's a, I, I would call it a, a somewhat appropriate slip because a lot sure. of people, including myself, look up to him just yeah. for how influential he is. And I mean, opening my, doors into whole other realms that changed my life. My my second son is named Edmund Percival Lewis Rowland. <laughs> so, so, I mean, that enough so, said right there. Yeah. So there's 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 you know no nobody esteems him more highly than I do, but um, yeah. but I do think he gets one one or two very critical things wrong in the discarded image and we, we can talk about that but yeah let's go over it, what he, he yeah, does well yeah 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. so it. but but uh all, just to kind of finish the point that i was making yeah please. um 
what you'll end up doing if you if you just do this stuff and, and it's kind of always held at arm, arm's length is that you'll you'll end up kind of filtering out the out the parts that you don't like and you'll actually you'll make it safe right and that's the that's the dangerous thing i mean if you were to I'll give an extreme example of this be, that that everybody who watches your channel will will be equally ticked off by, you know, and so it's like it'll be safe for this audience. Okay, so I recently there was a book that came out recently. I won't name the book because I don't want to, you know, direct. Well, anyway, I'm not going to name the call okay. the author out here, okay. but there's a book that came out very recently, and it was about um, uh, religion in the Middle Ages, and and it was getting some really good reviews and things like this, and so I I bought the book. I started reading it and then the introduction, the woman who wrote the book, she starts talking about how like she's uh, used to grew up evangelical in a really strict kind of household. And medieval Christianity was the thing that really kind of basically kind of opened her eyes to like, there are some other ways of being a Christian. And and I'm like, so far so good. Like I'm tracking, that's my story as well, et cetera, et cetera. And then the story keeps going or she keeps going and I'm like, okay, maybe seems like maybe she's got some more liberal leanings, which is kind of a weird thing to take away from medieval Christianity. But I'll just, I'll, I'll hear her out. I'll hear, her, you know, I'm trying to give her a fair hearing and everything. Mm -hmm. And then mm -hmm. she gets to this point where she says, okay, so before we start talking about the things I like about the Middle Ages, so doing the reverse of what we're trying to do here, I need a, I need a caveat it with here's all the bad things about the Middle Ages, and just get that out of the way so everybody knows these things are bad. <laughs> And then she says, the very first thing she says is, in the Middle Ages, everyone hated women, even the women. Whoa. So, which is, which is, uh, at, at, at that point, I returned the book. Yeah, I just, kind of a I just, uh, there. yeah, I just like, so if, if you start out with everybody in the Middle Ages was, was very hateful, like deeply hateful towards women, including the women, you know, then it's, well, okay, at that point, you've just, You've just basically taken a whole bunch of things off the table, you know, mm -hmm. that would have been fun to talk about, right? Um, yeah. One of my favorite things, just as an aside, is when people talk about Hildegard von Bingen, who's a, a Western saint mystic, um, um, a very, uh, a very accomplished, talented woman, and uh, a nun, an abbess of a monastery in Germany, and uh, and I think a holy person. I, I really believe that. Um, uh, a lot of people look at her as, as a like a sort of a proto feminist figure or something like this. But my favorite, and so so, but one of her one of her most important theological treatises is on how women are ontologically unfit for the priesthood. So it's it's kind of you know, uh, but but she but this author would look at that and say, well, here's an example of obviously you know Hildegard just hates women, which is nonsense. She doesn't hate women, you know, she just believes something different. From what you believe right and so but but this is an example of mm -hmm. uh this is somebody who is interested in medieval theology not in a sense that she would ever want to become you know a medieval christian right but just in a sense that she wants to kind of keep it at the safe distance from herself and pick out the things that she th she thinks are kind of neat or kind of validate the way that she feels about the world but isn't willing yeah. to really accept it for what it is and yeah. this is just a this is something that i think we need to be a little careful about so Absolutely, uh, yeah. that's why kind of I, I i when we think about the the image right it's really it's the icon right that medieval culture produced this this icon of an eternal reality and the middle ages is past I'm sorry to say, nobody's sorrier about it than I am, but the Middle Ages is past, but the eternal reality is always with us.
Mm. And, mm. Um, and that's something that you can directly enter into and participate in, even if you find yourself living in 21st century America. But still, just so. to think about the magnitude, you're saying the culminative productions of architecture and literature and society yeah. and all of that is like culminated together and presented as one image yeah. that follows, you know, similar principles and patterns. That's it's very astounding. And it's a very complicated image and certainly not near. I mean, one of the reasons when the alignment comes along, one of the reasons that, that they're, I mean, to talk about architecture for a second, when the Enlightenment comes along and like the neoclassical revival and, and all of that stuff, one of the things they start doing is building buildings in imitation of the buildings of classical Greece and Rome, right? Our nation's capital, uh, which oh. I've recently been to, yeah. is, is full of such buildings, right? Uh, because, you know, uh, it and, um, you know, our constitution, and all those things is fundamentally a product of, of the Enlightenment. And, uh, uh, but... One of the interesting things ab about it is that these these ancient buildings in Greece and Rome, most of oh the only surviving examples of which are almost all churches, by the way, you know yeah. the Parthenon is a is a is a church and so on and so forth. Um, uh, 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 the 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 uh, Pantheon, Pantheon in Rome is what I meant, but I, actually the Parthenon was also a church. It was a Christian church longer than it was a, a pagan temple, but oh. yeah, yeah. Um, uh, the uh, these buildings were not white. They were painted. Everything was painted. The uh, the ancient world that they painted the columns. They painted the the bricks. They painted the the marble, the stones. Oh. They painted all of their statues. I mean, those beautiful like white marble statues or whatever. Uh, they were all painted. What? Everything was yeah. So 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 the whole ancient world, and then going from there into the Middle Ages, all the great cathedrals of Western Europe were painted, just like Orthodox churches are painted now. I mean, if you if you look at uh, you can because they've found the pigments in the stones, and they've used that to uh, for for like these beautiful cathedrals, Chartres uh, uh, or Chart uh, 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 Notre Dame, and and so on. They've 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 found like the pigments in the stones, and you can find digital where they've done like a digital reproduction of. It wasn't granite. It wasn't just bare granite going up the ceiling. What? These this was like a these these buildings were beautifully painted, just like the interior of like a normal Orthodox cathedral would be now. You know, maybe with with different different colors, a different color palette because you're in a different region, or maybe uh, uh and and maybe maybe not always like you know, big fresco icons, maybe some other stuff, but it was all brightly painted. I mean, this is the point mm. that I'm trying to make. And you can go read books about this and the his, like history of arts. There's a couple of, there's a couple of good ones that have come out recently and I can't remember the name of them, but I have a buddy who's really into this stuff. And, and so we've been, he's been reading it. We've been talking about it. This information during the enlightenment and the neoclassical period was actively suppressed. It was actively suppressed by like whenever they find evidence of, oh, these columns or something were painted, they would just like suppress that information because to them, color was part of the messy, irrational Middle Ages. Ugh. And what they wanted to do was like create a, a, an ordered world that was actually this totally, uh, uh, a really a totally bogus version of, of late antiquity that never really existed. Right. But but that is the basis for like the enlightenment, this idea that we could just like perfectly, logically, rationally order society. 
but that that goes all the way down to the way that people decided to paint or not paint buildings during the enlightenment so Richard, what you're saying is like probably up there maybe not quite but up there as if like parents sit you down and tell you sorry son you've been adopted yes like, right yeah i've been living a lie yeah. this whole time yeah i mean i mean and and so i mean color is color is uh is a really important thing. I think that it's uh, something we take for granted. As you can see, like my office is is deliberately painted in a certain way, right? This is where I work and write and whatnot. Um, um, color is not just like a nice to have. It's not a neutral thing. Colors really say certain things about the world. And the fact that this 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 is an aspect of the ancient world that was rejected almost completely until very recently. Mm -hmm. um, but actually the ancient world, I mean, there's, they did, uh, they did some exhibits recently uh, where they basically reproduced the statues with the colors on them to kind of show what they were like. And I think that my oh, only beef gosh. with that particular, uh, uh, um, my only beef with that particular um, exhibit was that I, I think they didn't do a very good job, um, but it was the mm -hmm. right idea. It was the right idea. I think yeah. that I think, you know, they made them look kind of bad. And I think it's because they, you know, we're still trying to figure out exactly what pigments these were and stuff like that. But I, I think that, um, uh, but it's the right, that's the right direction to be moving in. But if you understand this, then you kind of understand that the, the, the Middle Ages is the, it's the flourishing of this culture that goes all the way back to antiquity right and that eventually guided by christianity kind of blossoms and produces this beautiful icon of this eternal reality and when you when you kind of pick and choose the part that you want and and just to try to make it safe and easy and people do this i mean orthodox people do this sometimes with like reductionist or revisionist version like pop versions of history but it's not that's not uh that's there's nothing special about like orthodox people doing it everybody does that right that that like this sort of historical revisionism because the actual the actual world is so untidy and uh, my favorite example of this is is if you took like a church in 15th century england uh, there's a great book about this that i'm always trying to hawk called uh, the stripping of the altars by eamon duffy who's a british historian it's and the stripping uh, of the altars the, the stripping of the altars which is okay. basically it's about it's about popular. It's on the shelf over there. Um, it's on. Um, I haven't given that copy away yet. I haven't given that copy away yet. I give away a lot of books. So like sometimes like what I have will just kind of depend on on whether or not I bought a new new one yet. But uh, in the stripping of the altars, it's basically a look at at popular religion in England before, you know, on the eve of the Reformation to basically uh, one of the things that he refutes in the stripping of the altars is this idea that the reformation was this bottom up movement in Europe, which it wasn't, it was really forced on people from the top down. And, uh, and, you know, most people have, for instance, never heard of the pilgrimage of grace, uh, which was this mass popular uprising against the reformation in England that was put down by the crown. Oh. Um, and, you know, again, that's a, a, a version of history. Most people have not heard, but Anyway, in the stripping of the altars, one of the things that, um, yeah, this is the book. Okay. One of the things that Duffy does is he, you know, describes what a what a medieval church would be would have you know would have been like, just like your little Paris church, which is the which is what I'm really interested in as a historian, 
is like what was just like a normal guy like me, you know, just like a a, a lay person, a parishioner, you know, what's what's your experience of of God and and of church and things like this, mm-hmm. and the way that he describes, you know, these medieval churches, and some of them are still like this, especially if you go to the ones that haven't become like super touristy, right, um, mm-hmm. in Western Europe or Eastern Europe, um, uh they have all these like little nooks and crannies and this little nook and cranny is kind of like my, this is behind a pillar or off in a corner or something like that. There's an icon of a saint there and a little place to light candles. And, and basically mm-hmm. like these churches have so much going on. And then what happens after the reformation is they say, no, 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 all of that is distracting you from the Bible or from the sermon or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so they have to, they have to clear all that stuff out, which they saw as clutter, but I see as life. But they have to clear all that stuff out that they see as clutter, and you know, and and now we have just four walls and it, and they're white, and we have pews, um. And it's funny when I was in Lithuania a couple of years ago with Father Andrew Stephen Damick, uh, we actually uh, went to give a talk at the only Reformed church in in uh, in Vilnius in the capital city there, and it was the only ch- it was the only church, yeah, the only they they have one and they they have a couple of Lutheran churches as well, uh, but almost all of Lithuania is is Roman Catholic and uh, there are some very beautiful Orthodox churches there as well, but it's mostly Roman Catholic. But there's yeah. one Reformed church, and we went in there, and uh, it was the you could tell it was the only Reformed church because it was the only church we went into with no art. It was mm. just pews and white walls, and now it was still mm. much nicer because it was an old building. It was still much nicer than any of the uh, the churches that I grew up in, but, um, it was four white walls and a, and a pulpit and pews. Mm-hmm. And that was it. And actually the, the, the folks, we had some symbolic world folks meet us out there. And one of them was, I think she attended there, but she was giving us like a tour. And she said, she apologized. She's like, I'm really sorry. The walls are, are so bare like this, but I will say, I will say, um, a week after we went there, they, uh, put a statue of the Virgin Mary on top of the building. So did we have anything okay. to do with that? I don't know, but it's there now. And uh, influencer. Mr. Yeah, Ryan. yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, all that to say, um, yeah, I, 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 I apologize for like going off on this tangent for so long, but I think it's really when we, we talk about the image, right? It's really important to think of that as an icon. That's mm-hmm. something that's been discarded or laid aside, but you could take it up again. Mm-hmm. And it's not to say that you can just become it's not to say that you can just become uh, a medieval person overnight or something like that, but you can take the icon up again because the icon actually refers to an eternal reality, right? Because the kingdom mm-hmm. of heaven is really like that. It's not four walls and pews. It's just not. I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah. People who are upset by that, but, but it's not, I mean, the kingdom of heaven is, is full of all of these uh, hierarchies and nooks and crannies and, and, you right. know, but Christ is, but, the, but then Christ is in every single one of them. Right. That's why that's the real thing. You don't have to worry. Like, am I getting too distracted from Jesus by, you know, like doing this other thing that's about Jesus? No, no, mm-hmm. not at all. Especially if you have uh, the sort of like the stream of the liturgy to kind of organize all of that in. So anyway, right. all that said, that's just the title. That's, that's my, my long yeah, explanation. So first hour, title of we've the book. gotten three words in. Well, really two minus the article. But, That's right. But all this is super helpful because if I had, if I had listened to this, uh, what you've said so far, before I went into reading the book, yeah, I don't think I would have put it down yeah, yeah, yeah. like I did the first time. Yeah. Um, because the first part, it dives into those, like it gets zoomed in level. Like we're talking book reviews of four books I had never heard of. I mean, maybe Dante, but like 
So it was like a lot all at once, a lot of foreign information all at once. Yeah. Um, and then, I, you know, what really helped was universal history. Listening to your podcast with Jonathan Peugeot helped a lot because it was kind of like the bite-sized mm -hmm. versions of, you know, stories I was a little bit more familiar with. Uh, and even some that I wasn't, like Ethiopia. Um, but it it does. It's almost like you have to learn the language, kind of like, you know, people in art, you know, it's like you have to learn yep. the artistic language to really understand what you're you're seeing you know like okay yeah the material the pigments and the paints could be right in front of you you can kind of see it but like you don't perceive it you don't understand the deeper meaning um and i know lewis gets into that with uh, like the layers of uh what the the spheres slatum the um angelology and so he, mm -hmm. he was like this is a very uh layered uh hierarchical world That's and right. So if, I think we're ready. If you're ready, why yeah. don't we dive into the model itself and kind okay. of describe really what's going on? Yeah. Um, so the thing that people probably know the most about the Middle Ages and like the medieval model um, and is, is the idea that it's geocentric, right? So if you like asked a, a medieval person to make a, a, a map of the solar system, first of all, they would have been like, the what? You have to say the cosmos or the universe. Oh, okay. And so they would draw, they, they, you know, uh, here's Earth at the center and then the moon and then uh, uh, Mercury and then, you know, uh, Venus and then the sun and then Mars and then uh, uh, Jupiter and that, you know, and that, and then they do the, the realm of the, the, um, the, the moving constellations, the zodiac, and then the fixed stars, and then the prima mobile, and then out here, the where God dwells. And so you could look at this and say, ah, oh, these stupid, silly little medieval people, they thought humanity was the center of the universe. Uh, and that's just completely not right. Um, what they thought was that, that humanity, that Earth was the bottom of the universe. So when the devil falls... Uh, in the Divine Comedy, the devil is sort of lodged at the very center of the earth, and they ha they uh, you have to escape hell literally by climbing up his butt crack, um, which what? is a, an actual thing that happens in the Divine Comedy at the end of Inferno. Um, um, uh, which would Jonathan and I are going to do a class on this year. It'll it'll start in Orthodox Bright Week, and we're going to go for six weeks just doing the Inferno, and then in a few months we'll do purgatorio and then paradiso so interesting um so interesting. so we have we have uh like if if people did the beowulf class with us or if you want to just do a deep read of the divine comedy with me and, and jonathan there'll be an opportunity to do that later this year but okay i gotta um, tell my dad this too because one of yeah. our really difficult uh, mountain biking trails that we made uh -huh. together was called satan's crack yeah well it that's a i don't know what to say like there's a lot of butt jokes in the in the inferno but anyway um the, it's just uh yeah. um i'm gonna share an uh, image it, yeah. is this is this kind yeah, of like this an imagistic it. uh, expression right. of what you're talking about with that's the spheres? Right. okay that's right so if you take a look at this if you take a look at this uh earth is not at the center it's at the bottom right it's at the bottom of the cosmos right because every direction you go and and everyone in the middle ages by the way sorry flat earthers everybody in the middle ages knew the earth was round um mm. Uh, this was this is not even something that was a question. Uh, everybody since the ancient Greeks knew, you know, the ancient Greeks also knew the world was round, which doesn't mean that you can't also depict it as flat for certain purposes. But 
you know, but people, people could do math. They could do math and, and figure out, I mean, they figured out the circumference of the earth, like, you know, you know, centuries before Christ was born. So it's not, um, uh, uh, so they knew the earth was round, which means that every direction you go from earth is up. You see, okay. Okay. every direction you go from earth is up. If people have read Ender's game, uh, there's that, like the enemy's gate is down. Have, I don't know if you've read Ender's game. Um, mm -hmm. but, but, uh, the, the idea that the enemy's gate is down, well, if you think about it, hell is down, right? So every direction away from hell is what it's up, right? Um, because, uh, because every direction you move away from earth is towards God. And this is the basic idea of the medieval model. And uh, so that the, the cosmos is laid out in this hierarchy around us. And the trick then is to, uh, is to make the uh leave this image up for a sec because there's something i want to talk about uh yep. right here yep. but the trick then is to make the uh uh is to is to um make the words of the lord's prayer a reality that god's will is done on earth as it is in heaven mm -hmm. right and if you read church fathers talk about this they say actually the earth is us you know we're the earth you know uh as in my earth, in my earth, as it is in heaven, but also just in general. So this, the idea was that the, even the, the, the reality of realities of civil society, like the, the emperor and the king and so forth, that these should reflect as best as possible. They should reflect the, um, these heavenly realities. Mm, so like if you're um, building out a city. Yeah. If you're building out a city, if you're, and, and this is why Constantinople is so important because it's the first city ever built from the ground up uh, by Christians, right? Mm. There's no pagan, there were no, you know, Constantine leveled Byzantium and then he built Nova Roma, like New Rome. Mm. And uh, he built it without any pagan temples, right? So it was the first city in the ancient world built without a single pagan temple. Um, and mm. obviously, of course, old Rome, all the temples eventually become churches as well. But, uh, but Constantinople is really important uh, to understand this this idea of the cosmos because it's the city as cosmos but you could also mm. you could also like flip that around and say in the middle ages they saw the cosmos as a city right and um okay so this is one of the one of the basic ideas of the medieval model is that these things play out in uh in in these fractals so the important thing to kind of point out here and you can kind of see this if you look at the the map of the earth here is that there's a line between the or the map of the cosmos is that you put up on the screen here. There's mm -hmm. a line between the earth and the, the sphere of, of, of fire around it. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and then the, the moon and then everything else beyond the moon. So this is another one of the most important ideas in the discarded image. Uh, and the most important ideas in the middle ages is very frequently in medieval poetry. You'll, you'll have, um, things will be referred to as being beyond the moon or translunar or something like this. Mm, and right, the right. idea is basically that everything else in the, everything beyond the circle of the moon, everything in the cosmos behaves according to kind of a fixed pattern and everything obeys God. That's the main thing to take away from that. Whereas beneath the circle of the moon, there is change, decay, death. And, uh, mm -hmm. and, and of course, our uh human human beings with free will running around mucking things up right, like cyclical time yeah cyclical time but also um 
it's not just cyclical time because beyond the circle of the moon you have that as well but mm -hmm. it's more like more like uh a decay right which mm -hmm. is really what which is what um which is what chronological time is right okay. change in change and decay change and decay should be like a mutability yeah mutability is another good okay. way so okay. beyond the circle of the moon uh there are there's still there's still time in terms of things move um but they move according to a pattern that they eventually return to right mm. um whereas beneath the circle of the moon things kind of move according to a pattern that they return to we have seasons that we cycle through and so on and so forth but then uh but then there's also a there's also a changeability right because because also we die things don't die beyond the moon so that's mm. that's a really important idea here and you can kind of see that on this you can kind of see that on this this map if you want to call it that of the medieval version of the cosmos and uh so the the term that lewis uses in the medieval uh in in the discarded image is that he says you know um nowadays that we we see ourselves standing um if you look at like the the ascent of man right the evolutionary model which is also a model this is one of the things lewis points out is that the current like darwinian evolution or i think we're beyond uh we've moved past darwinian evolution now and 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 we've got some other theories out there i don't really know though because i i don't really care but um uh uh we've moved uh past darwinian evolution but but that that sort of ascent of man you know it's where like the the, the apes you know you know the, the lineup where the apes stand progressively more upright you yeah know? yeah and so what, what lewis says is that modern man actually thinks of ourselves as standing at the top of a staircase looking back and we're like oh look at all of these things that we've evolved from and that we've transcended and that mm -hmm. we've you know and this is the myth of evolutionism which in another essay somewhere else Lewis talks about this more and he says that the myth of evolutionism is separate from uh it's it's really separate from you know like the biological theory of evolution and you shouldn't treat the two as though the same thing because mm -hmm. the myth of evolution is this idea that that uh the 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 new must always uh usurp the old right and this is mm -hmm. the main idea in Wagner and it's the main idea in Nietzsche and it's the main idea and like all these different, mm -hmm. you know, is that, is that by its very newness, it's the main idea in star Wars, right? Mm -hmm. If, if, if people want to think about it that way, which is very Wagnerian, you know, deli deliberately so in its music and in its use of light and dark and everything, um, you know, star mm -hmm. Wars is all about like, you have to kill your father and then like take his place. Right. Um, and this is what happens. This is what happens in the original Star Wars trilogy, but it's still there actually, even in the Star Wars sequel trilogy, the one that everybody hates mm. justly. I think it's not great, but, um, but it is very authentic to the original spirit of Star Wars, you mm. know, that uh, we all hated that scene where, the, where they're like burning all the Jedi books or whatever, but that's, that's totally authentic to the spirit of Star Wars, which is always about, the new thing coming along has to overthrow the old order, right? Uh, so that's the, the has to overthrow. Yeah. So that's the myth, of, and that's why that's why the main characters of Star Wars always have to be rebels, which is sort of becomes a problem. Then and that's why these new Star yeah. Wars stories just are not very good. It's because it's like, well, we just had a rebellion. Well, yes, but what about second yeah. rebellion? You know? Um, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, so yeah. so uh, that's the uh, that's the modern. Uh, that's the modern model, you could say, and it's built off of this myth of evolutionism. This that the old order has to mm -hmm. go, right? And and you know, uh, 
Lewis even uses the term that we we're using a lot today, uh, scientism. Scientism. Yeah, that's right. Right. So it's kind of like a, what you're describing is something uh, removed uh, culturally. It's, it's like a cultural movement more than like a scientific theory, let's say. So the, 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 the medieval model is totally different from that because in the medieval model, you are always building on the thing that came before you, right? So nobody mm -hmm. in the Middle Ages thought, oh, yes, though the classical period, yet those, those, those stupid, benighted Romans and Greeks, we can do mm -hmm. better than them, right? Everybody in the Middle Ages was essentially a, a classicist, right? They, everybody in the Middle Ages was saying, was 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 trying to continue to build on the civilization essentially the roman the greco-roman civilization that they'd inherited and mm. this is why uh that so so first of all this idea is the main idea of universal history like this is the main thing that we've been trying to help people understand not just greco-roman civilization by the way we'll talk about this in a minute but also on the the semitic inheritance of christianity mm. um um like whole, the whole idea of like hierarchies of angels all that stuff right mm -hmm. that comes straight from uh, that comes straight. It's not. It's not a Greco-Roman thing that comes straight from uh, ancient Judaism and so so on. Mm -hmm. But um, the the and then the other thing to to kind of say about that is that uh, part of the you could say like the psyop, you know, that that went along. It was the same people that went along with like taking the color out of history mm -hmm. was the invention of the word Byzantine. To talk mm. about the Eastern Roman Empire, mm. nobody in the East Eastern Roman Empire ever called themselves Byzantines, mm. right? There is no, uh, I'm sorry, everybody, there is no such thing as a Byzantine right. Like that's uh, it's a completely made up term. Dude, and, you're just like blowing up lie after lie. Yeah, but the but the reason that that term was brought in, it was and it was brought in as a pejorative. Even today in English when we want to say something is like overly complex, we say it's Byzantine, right? And that's never a good thing. Yeah. Nobody's like, nobody's like, oh yeah, I went down to the DMV. It was totally Byzantine, man. That would be, you know, like if the, if the DMV was actually Byzantine, that would be awesome. Right. But it was, it was kind of this, this pejorative uh, way. And it's, it's, it's tied up with weird things. Like I'll give you an example. Um, so I'm a Germanic philologist, you know, specifically by discipline. One of the early theories about the Germanic languages is that, um, so there's a series of sound shifts that are described by a linguistic law called Grimm's Law uh, mm. that was really, was articulated by uh, uh, Jakob Grimm, who is, of course, famous for the, the fairy tales, right, but was actually a very serious philologist and linguist. And um, he, not that fairy tales aren't serious, but anyway, um, he uh so he expressed this this um uh linguistic change and a good example is the word hundred in in germanic languages starts with an h right but but it's it has the same root in in proto-indo-european as the kentum in in latin which starts with a k so one of the things that that defines these the the sound shift of germanic languages as they become their own sort of separate dialect of languages from proto-indo-european is the shift from k to, all right, which are related. You notice you just do something slightly different with your throat, right? Um, but they're both kind of breathy. So there was an early theory, actually, that the reason that Germanic peoples had this change is because they were just naturally breathier. And the reason that they were breathier is because they were just so much more active 
than all of these decadent Mediterranean civilizations. And so one of the things that that this kind of produces in the 19th century as part of, uh, and even before that as part of like, uh, uh, you know, European nationalism and whatnot, is this idea that the that the Germanic people and that the Anglo-Saxon people, like they're harder workers and they're more aggressive and they're more assertive and all these different things because they have a, they have a naturally like more assertive language uh, than these decadent Mediterranean people who are just like sitting around taking a siesta all day. And it's like, yeah, the, 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 the hardworking English versus the lazy Italians or the lazy Greeks or the lazy, you know, basically anybody from the Mediterranean. And so there was this, this, uh, I mean, this is one of the the main ideas and you still see people that believe this stuff, which is, um, uh, which, which is mostly nonsense. I mean, certainly there is such a thing as like the Protestant work ethic and stuff like that. But, um, but the idea that it just goes back to, we have like a breathier language is, is a pretty silly theory, which nobody really believes or teaches anymore. But, um, uh, but it's it's part and parcel with this idea that the stuff that came out of the East, like the Byzantine civilization, it that's decadent and perfumed and effeminate and all these different things. Not like us, not like us, you know, big, strong Germanic peoples, you know. And of course, if you'd said this to anybody, like to any Viking or any Anglo-Saxon warrior king or something like this, they would have thought you were just crazy because, mm. of course, they they loved uh they, you know, for them, Constantinople was Miklagar, the great city, mm. right? And that's where they send all of their princes to be educated and to work as mercenaries and all this different stuff, right? So there is, I mean, there is definitely something about the symbolism of the the bar the northern barbarian and the importance, uh, for good or for ill that it has for Roman culture. But, uh, but this whole idea of of like the Byzantine East is a, um, it's a construct construct that was part of the sort of same. Uh, it's part of the same kind of um, revisionism that produces things like, you know, whitewashed stone pillars and okay. enlightenment, you know, construction and things like this. So mm -hmm. um, I don't remember how we got here. I'm off on another tangent. Yeah, but... well, I'll tell you this. This is also helpful in maybe explaining why I wasn't necessarily set up to win with reading the discarded image because yeah. you had all of these other things that you're kind yeah. of like bursting <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> that well, I'm... so so this is the thing. Like, uh, this is what I'm trying to get at is that if you um, if you take the world that Lewis is describing, if you look at it, he goes straight from antiquity, like Ovid, and um, also the uh, the ascent of like uh, Cicero's, like the ascent of Scipio and things like that. He goes straight from there, and also the Bible, which is an Eastern product, right? He goes he goes right straight from there into into like the 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 western middle ages and sort of shows how there's this just cohesive picture this development this line right um he talks about the uh, uh the constellation of philosophy by boethius uh jonathan just had a, a video about it on his channel to my great consternation i was not part of that conversation uh but it's a really good conversation and uh boethius is a is a very very important book to me i have probably three or four copies around here but it's, uh, um, you know, w one of the things that Lewis says about it in the discarded image is to is that to um, uh, to love this book is to become a naturalized citizen of the Middle Ages, mm. right? If you can, um, and uh, Boethius is, I think, one of the most important books that's ever been written. So, oh. um, and Lewis, the discarded Im image was my introduction to it, and I definitely 
definitely recommend people go watch that conversation that Jonathan just had on his channel about it and then go read it. Very important, very important book. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But all of the stuff, all of the stuff is coming out of the, the sort of the same world. And that world is, is very, it's beautiful. It's colorful. It's messy. It's not tidy. Um, the, the, uh, the medievals were a, a real studying contradictions in the sense, because in the one sense, they were great systematizers. They were always coming up with like new ways to categorize things. But mm -hmm. at the same time, they, um, they didn't think in systematic terms like we do, right. They, 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 mm -hmm. um, uh, they didn't think in, you know, in the way that we think in terms of laws. And this is the big idea to, mm -hmm. to bring it back around to discarded image mm -hmm. is that the medieval model doesn't think of a world which is which consists of laws um then what do they think of it as it's it's a world moved by love ah uh, so this is what this is what lewis says at the end right he says it's pretty silly to think of the cosmos as this world where um where uh uh there's a law of gravity like there's some traffic court somewhere and if i violate the law of gravity then then i'm gonna have to i'm gonna get a ticket or a citation or be put in jail or something like that right that's right that's right. like a that's a that's a pretty silly way to think about the world but that's our idiom and the reason that we think about it that way is because that's the society that we live in which is mainly one of laws mm -hmm. but in the middle ages but but what lewis is trying to say is is that it's not inherently silly to think of this idea of kindly inclining, this idea of things being basically moved towards each other through love, right? Mm. It's not like people in right. the Middle Ages didn't know that apples fall when you know down. Like mm -hmm. Newton wasn't sitting under a tree and you know said, "Egads, I've just noticed, like apples fall down. I wonder why that is." Of course, everyone knew that it worked this way. They just explained it differently, right? The apple is made of earth, and it's trying to get back to the earth because that's what it's made from, right? And so everything's trying to get back to where it comes from. And the tricky thing about being a human being is that you have two parts of yourself. You have a body which comes from the earth, but then you have a soul which comes from God. And so the mm -hmm. soul is always trying to get back to God and the body is always trying to uh, draw you back down to the earth. And the, the, the deep mystery of being a human being is that the resurrection, the transfiguration of the human person is not just you die and you go to heaven. It's that the earth itself is also transfigured and resurrected right and this is what it you know the sons of the resurrection become sons of god equal to the angels right and so mm. so we and we we actually elevate all of creation the whole created order with us in that moment that we're uh, uh resurrected i really recommend people go and get um i wish i could remember what volume it's in but father dimitri steteloi was an orthodox um confessor and uh a theologian of the last century he has a in his in his master very long uh, multi series multi volume series on dogmatic theology. He has a chapter towards the end on the resurrection. It's one of the most beautiful things I think you'll ever read. Mm. But he talks about this. He talks about the transfiguration of Christ and how it foreshadows the resurrection and this redemption of all the cosmos. Right, but that redemption of the cosmos is possible because the cosmos is held together and moved ultimately by the love of God. Dante calls it the love at the very end of the of paradiso the love that moves the sun and the other stars right that's mm -hmm. um so anyway that's 
that's kind of my best pitch for the discarded image, not just the book itself, which is a really beautiful introduction, but to the whole world that it introduces, um, is that it will introduce you to a world which is moved by love. And it's a much more, in, in, in some, some, some senses, dangerous world. I think there's something about the idea of a world that's just held together by these perfectly regular laws, which, mm. by the way, aren't actually perfectly regular, um, but uh, but they seem to be most of the time. Uh, the, something about that that I think feels very safe and ordered mm -hmm. and tidy, right? But but the the medieval cosmos, just like the medieval church, is an untidy and colorful place, um, and Wild. that's that's gonna make and so yeah, there's a wildness to it. There's a wildness to it. There's a wildness to Christ, right? You know, there's a wildness to Christ in the Gospels. Not a tidy person is Jesus Christ to kind of bring it all back around. Uh, and so, mm -hmm. in that sense, I think the the medieval cosmos, if we're if we're looking at it as an image, as an icon, then the, there's something more true about that than the one that we inhabit today, or the one that we. Embrace, well, let's get back to the today. that staircase analogy you you described. Yeah. The first one of scientism and the you know myth of uh, evolution. What, what's the other one? How would a medieval man? Yeah, so so what what Lewis says is that man sees himself standing at the bottom of a staircase looking up. Mm. And you're looking up into these complex hierarchies of of angels and saints and stars and all these things, right? And then God at the top. But then the thing that you're supposed to do is ascend the staircase. Um, and so, you know, uh, the the goal has always been going all the way back to I thought maybe I was going to talk a little bit about the Book of Jubilees, but I think we're going to run out of time. But that's if you want to hear about the Book of Jubilees, come to the conference, uh, come there to the summit. Go. But yes. but um, um, going back all the way to to this really old, all this really old Semitic stuff, right? Mm. Uh, human deification has always been the goal. Theosis is mm. you know, or deification if you want the Latin term, but but um, but it's man ascending the staircase, and then the thing is that each step of the staircase is its own little staircase. And at every step and every little step, Christ is there, right? Mm -hmm. And so you you sort of ascend this fractal, um, the series of fractal fractal patterns towards God. But then God is everywhere present, filling all things at each one of those stages along the way. Mm -hmm. And this is something that they intuited even in the pre-Christian world. Lewis talks about this uh, in when he talks about the ascent of Scipio, which is um, a, a kind of an early expression of some of these ideas. But um, but it's uh, it's a um, this 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 idea of the ascent, right? The ascent towards God um, is also what we mean by theosis or or human deification or something like this. And it's it's taking up the things of earth as Christ did, right? Christ takes a body of earth and then he ascends with it into heaven, right? I can tell you how many times somebody would ask me when I was a Protestant minister. So what happened to Jesus' body after his ascent? Like, did it just fall off or like, mm -hmm. what, you know, because they couldn't get the, their head around the idea that, that, that God could still have a physical body. But of course he does. Christ didn't get rid of his body. You know, it's part of him. It's, it's part of who he is. And, um, but it's going to be the same for all of us. That's why we look for the resurrection of the dead, a, a, a real bodily resurrection. That's the fundamental hope of our faith as Christians. Without that, Without that, you're some kind of a Gnostic. Mm. So, so yeah, bottom of the staircase looking up, but then also it's a staircase. It's not a, I don't know, it's not a wall. It's a staircase. So you're you're meant to you're meant to climb. You're meant mm -hmm. to ascend. Yeah, yeah. I know another thing that he had mentioned too in that section. I really like the chapter on heavens. 
I think that one, at least yeah, in your yeah, seasonal yeah. life, like really opened up a lot of things. Um, one of the things too, he talks about uh, is the, oh, what did he call it? Uh, didn't call it reason. He called it uh ratio mm-hmm. and uh, yeah. was it intellectum? Yeah. yeah. Yes. Um, I found that really interesting. Whereas uh, maybe you could speak into it, um, but that section just, it just, it really helped understand was like it, there was a place for reason, um, but it wasn't the yes. ultimate thing, right? Yeah. There was this uh, a revelatory understanding of the things that we receive that is, um, it seems like they had more of a priority for that and reason had its place, but it wasn't at the, the peak of what they were uh, ascending to of understanding. Right. Um, yeah, the, the big kind of difference here is... Um what what intellect means this is nowadays when we say intellect we just mean like your brain right um but really your intellect is something closer to um and you know don't at me here because different church fathers use kind of like different words for some of these things and uh but but when we talk about something like being spiritual or noetic noetic um this greek word the noose right that's really when a Latin writer uses the word intellect. That's this is what they mean. It's your ability. It's like a, okay. it's like a spiritual sensory organ, right? It's your ability to perceive truth. Mm-hmm. If you read in in the ancient world, so and so has a great intellect. What we don't mean is that they're a very smart person. What we mean is that they have the ability to, um, uh, um. The, the ability to perceive truth, the ability to be uh, sensitive to um, uh, the, uh, the the say it's like the ability to be sensitive to higher realities, something like that. Right. And so Lewis says the belief that to recognize a duty was to perceive a truth, not because you had a good heart, but because you were an intellectual being has its roots in antiquity. So this idea that that you would recognize something as being true about the world but that that recognition comes from the um, the recognition comes from the fact that you have an intellect, you have a noose, and and therefore this ability to kind of apprehend these higher realities. That's what it mm. means to be an intellectual, right? Um, and so usually uh, uh, spirits like angels and so on um, are talked about uh, are are often referred to in in like medieval Latin writing as being intellects. They're intellects. It doesn't mean they're just like brains floating around in the void or something like this, but they're but mm. they're all intellect, right? In other words, they're they 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 don't have they they completely relate to you could say like the spiritual principle or the higher principle, something like that. I mean, this is one of those things where the ways that we use these words, imagination, intellect, reason, so on and so forth, have just changed so much. They changed so much that it is very hard to get back to an original way of using them and so sometimes it is useful to just like bring in a bit of 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 uh from this the standpoint of english like a, a foreign word something like noose because it's easier to because it doesn't it doesn't already have a meaning in english so it's like easier to to introduce a new concept in that way but um but i think that that section yeah on on on, on ratio um on ratio or ratio and mm-hmm. and and That's and, and intellectus that that is a very important section if you want to just sort of 
And it's important because it'll help you understand yourself better. But also, if you don't know what's meant by these things, you will just completely misread almost every work of medieval literature if you ever decide you want to go back and read the primary sources. Right. And he even says that the way that we talk about reason is a much more narrowed way of, than That's if we right. were to read books and literature from the Middle Ages, then it's like they're kind of talking about much more. I mean, so like one piece of it may be what we mean and understand today, uh, yeah. but yeah. it's it's a whole lot more. Yeah. And you can think about how in the modern world, uh, just take that word intellect, right? In the modern world, we've just narrowed it down to basically just the things happening in your brain, mm -hmm. right? And and in, in many ways, even though we know more about the world from the aspect of, let's say, physical sciences, and I definitely mm -hmm. have an immediacy of knowledge about what is the Pope doing in Rome today that I wouldn't have had in the Middle Ages, those sorts of things, right? Mm -hmm. um, not always, Not always a good thing, I think. Yeah, but uh, we definitely have more access to information and more access to, um, and and certainly a greater amount of knowledge about the physical world and so on and so forth. But in many ways, our perspective is much narrower mm -hmm. because we've taken certain aspects of creation and we've said this is all there is, and so yeah. we've gone as deep as we can and really spent all of our all, all of our, let's say, our energies in trying to deepen our understanding of those aspects of creation and really just ignored other things about ourselves entirely. And now all that stuff is hitting back. Right. And that's why mm -hmm. as society begins to fragment, people just go chasing these weird spiritualities and, you know, different stuff. And, but it's all because it's, you know, I'm not saying anything that hasn't been said a million times before now, but it's because we've neglected this part of ourselves for so long mm. and now it's right. at, at to the point that we've starved ourselves yeah yeah and, and so now 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 you know like when somebody's starving they don't care what they eat they're just they just want to eat totally right? yes yeah yeah that was part of like the i would call it like the neo hippie group um, yeah or uh especially like kind of combined with like expatriates living in, in costa rica or parts of mexico and yeah 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 and it's, it's just really interesting because they have such a spiritual thirst and hunger and they like you said they'll just feed it with wow oh my gosh and like the sparkles and it just looks so amazing yeah. what a feeling and then yeah. you know a day later oh my goodness this other thing you yes. know this thing from this continent this thing from this other part of the world yeah. you know um which i think is a there is a purity a pure intention in that yeah. but without like the structure that we're describing with this model where it's like people the cool thing i like too is people at every level of society had a place and a purpose. I think one of the, the maybe you're about to bust this lie too. Thanks. Go ahead. But um, it, it feels like when we look back at people like, oh, these barbarians from this horrible dark ages, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which uh, we, we made it a whole hour and a half so far and we haven't even used that term yeah. <laughs> for a reason. Um, it, we, we look at it and we think, oh, those poor peasants, oh, the fiefdoms, Oh my goodness, you know, say on one side you could say, oh, a pre-capitalistic era. Right. The other side, oh, the oppressive, you know, fascist, whatever. Yeah, fascist yeah. and all these classism and all yeah. yeah. So it's like no matter which way you're looking at it, they're both uh negative, you know, yeah. towards this time. But then you read Lewis, and then what does he say? He's like, No, everybody felt uh empowered with a purpose. You know, yeah. they're all part of something greater yeah. than themselves and collectively working at it. Yeah, and 
it's not to say that people weren't unhappy or didn't suffer um because people will always be unhappy and suffer there's nothing i mean one of the worst things that i think we have tried to do is basically essentialize the elimination of human suffering as this is the mark of a of a highly evolved state mm. you know and it's tricky because on the on the one hand like how could you say you're against that you know like of course i don't want to see people suffer especially not you know people that i care about but yeah. the 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 but also, but also, you need to be able to sort of recognize that suffering is a part of human existence, and it's a part of, it's a part of the world that we live in, and that even Christ, when he comes, he doesn't eliminate anybody's suffering, right? He suffers, right? He enters into suffering to fill it with himself, and um, there's maybe something going a little wrong. This is why, I mean, in really extreme cases. Uh, such as what's happening in Canada right now, we've gone so far to eliminate suffering that now people are just depressed and miserable and old. And mm. and so what do we need to do? Well, we need to eliminate their suffering one step further, right? By helping them like commit medical suicide, right? And this, mm. I mean, that that's that's the elimination. That's that's where it goes. Because this is the this is the weird sort of paradox. The more you work to eliminate, if you work to, to totally eliminate all human suffering, eventually the only way to do this is to eliminate humans. Right. And Lewis is weirdly yeah. prescient about this in uh in um in that hideous strength, um, the third book in his cosmic trilogy. He's weirdly prescient about this. But mm. there's a um uh so it's not that no one in the Middle Ages suffered or that, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It's not that bad things didn't happen, but also, you know, the bad things that that one of the things is that yeah there were wars but the wars were not at the scale that we have wars now like we have you know it's 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 just if you look at the horrors of the 20th century and even the horrors that are now going on in the 21st century it's it's at so much more of a scale than anything that happened in the middle ages at least in the middle ages you had laws of war that were mostly almost always followed you had mm-hmm. um you had certain days that you couldn't couldn't fight on things like this you know um very different situation than what we have now but the um one of the the things that's really beautiful to me about medieval christianity is what uh uh charles taylor calls variable speed christianity mm-hmm. and this is one that we might have to stop here because i've got something else i got to do in five minutes oh, but that's right um, yeah. <laughs> but um uh he talks about variable speed Christianity and it's one of the things that Calvin's Geneva basically tries to eliminate. Uh, it's a, the idea of variable speed Christianity is that you could have a peasant and a monk and a king and the things that Christianity expects from each of them is different, right? Mm-hmm. For the peasant, I mean, you read this in the church fathers, everybody wants to go read like all the great ascetic literature and all that stuff. But if you, at the beginning of, for instance, the ladder of divine ascent, which is one of the greatest works of, of ascetic literature ever written saint john says i'm writing this for monks if you're a lay person do these five things and you'll you'll go to you'll you'll be saved right oh yeah do these five things very simple don't defraud anybody don't lie be faithful in your marriage go to Mm -hmm. church confess your sins that's it it's very simple if you're a lay person actually Mm -hmm. um you don't have to get over complicated with all this different stuff Uh, he's writing the ladder for monks so the idea is that monks are intended to go at this speed Mm. but if you're a if you're a peasant then maybe you go at this speed and for your king something else is also required of you right um and that that could be okay there could be room for all of those things in the kingdom of god Mm. what 
it happens specifically in Calvin's Geneva. This is according to Taylor in it, but I think he's right about it is that basically they try to say, no, everyone's got to go at the same speed and that speed has to be maximum. If you're not going at maximum speed, then you're not really a real Christian. And um, mm -hmm. even in uh, the evangelical circles I grew up in, there was kind of this idea that, well, listen, if you weren't in ministry somehow, like if you weren't like a missionary or something, then you're not, you're not like one of the real Christians. You're not like one of the super Christians. You're not, you know, um, and, uh, and so one of the things that happened in Geneva is that, you know, they had people who would keep an eye on like how much, uh, silverware does, does you, do your neighbors have, right? Because maybe they have too much, which means that they're kind of materialistic. And what we need to do is bring the city in, like bring the state in to essentially mm. make sure that they're not being too materialistic. So we're going to confiscate some of that silverware and things like that. That's an extreme example, but it's one that really happened. Mm. Um, if uh, So uh, so the, the idea then became everybody's got to be always going at the same speed and that same that speed always has to be maximum. And traditional Christianity... It's not to say that there isn't a push pull. There's always people in, you know, like, especially if you're like a spiritual, you're a pastor of some kind, you're always trying to get the people to do more, to be more committed, to actually, you know, stop fornicating and stop getting drunk and like all these things. Like, so it's not to say that there isn't always push pull, but, uh, but there were, there were, you know, kind of, again, variable speeds, right? Different speeds to the faith, uh, Christianity. And, mm -hmm. but the idea was never that. Uh, was never supposed to be that yeah if you're one of those peasants and you're living a faithful life and you're pious you you i mean and you have to remember like being a pious peasant still meant going to church every day mm. you know like before before you went to the, like you you know but um but you're you're living a pious life there was no idea that that person is like less of a christian than this monk but also everybody knew the monk was more of a christian you see like you could be mm -hmm. you can have you you can have some people holier than other people and also that's okay because the whole cosmos is laid out that way mm -hmm. like it's just the way that it is and this is one of the most difficult things for people to get to and it's the same thing that keeps them from accepting traditional christianity as a whole yeah this is the idea that some people are closer to god than others and you mm -hmm. could do two things with that information one is you could say some people are closer to God than others, so I should get to know those people and try to get close to God, right? Yeah. The other thing you could do is say, no, 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 I'm going to pull everybody down. I'm going to pull everybody down so it's just a flat level. Right. You know, just me and God, mm -hmm. right? So, yeah, I really want to keep talking about this stuff, but I, I'm really sorry. I have to go I know, now. You have to hop off. I think uh, I'll just read a couple quotes and we'll yeah. Click uh, end to the recording. So I'm going to read these from my notes. I will be publishing some notes for people that are interested. Um, one is from page 109. Uh, sometimes the old intuitions, sometimes the old intuitions survive. When they do not, we falter. And the other one is uh, he's talking about realization of this medieval model. And he's encouraging people that the recipe for such realization is not the study of books. And encourages people to go out for a midnight stroll and, and gaze upon the night sky. Um, so it kind of comes back to what you're talking about is take your time. This is practical, you know, yeah. to really be able to perceive some of these things. Yeah. So it's, uh, not, it's really not hard to start participating in this stuff. I mean, yeah, go read the stuff, but some of these books are hard. It might take people a long time, but mm -hmm. you can like go, go stargazing, go to church on a Sunday mm -hmm. morning, you know, things like that. Um, you can't neglect that part of the process. Yeah, yeah, this. yeah. That is part of the process, and th yeah. that's the main thing I was trying to say earlier. Is like to don't just do all the stuff from your armchair. 
it's way too easy and it's very safe but you got to go go do the dangerous thing and like find a find a traditional church and go to church on a sunday morning and you're going to meet people who like are are crazy mm-hmm. and or lukewarm or steal your umbrella or like whatever like you're going to meet all kinds of crazy kinds of people mm-hmm. and it's not going to be nearly as safe as just like doing the stuff in your in your armchair at home but it's it's the real thing it's it's real life so thank you so much richard thanks for having me man i'm Can't sorry wait that to see you in florida we, didn't even get to the other stuff but like i said come to florida i'm going to be talking about weird stuff about genesis and i'm really excited about it so okay um so but yeah you have to come to florida to, to hear it so okay well all right until then all right brother yeah. be well Take care bye-bye